Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Adam Mabry, on what to do when it feels like God isn't there. Sometimes the biggest exercise of faith that we can have is perseverance. Mm-hmm. Just waking up the next day and saying, okay, God, I trust you. Mm-hmm. And while I'm waiting on the healing, I'll serve you. Adam Mabry, next. Do you do when it feels like God isn't there, or at least silent, in the midst of seeking Him about the state of the world, our own suffering, or the struggles of those we know? That's the topic of today's discussion with Adam Mabry, pastor of Aletheia Church in Boston and author of When God Seems Gone, Finding Hope When Nothing Makes Sense. Here's Kimberly Burchell. Adam, I'm so excited to talk to you about your book today because I actually know people that feel like God is gone in their life. They've been praying and petitioning God for certain things, haven't gotten those answers, and still find themselves in certain situations. And so this is such a timely book. I'm wondering, what is it that caused you to write this book? Did you have personal experience feeling God was gone? Uh, Yeah. Uh, short answer is yes. Uh, you know, the the nature of my own experience is uh, somewhat ongoing and involves, you know, uh, it involves people in my family. And so in, in the book, I, I paint with broad brushstrokes, but essentially, you know, we've had a long-term illness in my family uh, that's affected us all. And it's affected us all in different ways. You know, in the background of that, I'm pastoring a church between Harvard and MIT. We're seeing people come to faith. We're seeing God do amazing stuff. And, and I'm a Bible nerd, I'm a theologian, I know God's there. Like, I know it. It's not a question in my mind. Of course God is there, of course God is good. But the emotional experience was not that God was there. And so the book really is, is birthed out of, you know, my own experience of surviving what, and, and even learning to thrive in, in the feeling of God's absence when you're sort of tormented by the conviction of his presence. Like, you know, he's still there. It, you know, I, I suppose an atheist wouldn't have this, you know, this problem so much, but we know God is there. The question is, in a world that tells us that we should constantly feel good, you know, we should constantly be in comfort, we should constantly feel happy and at ease, and that's kind of the message our culture sends us. How, yeah. how, do, we, how do we follow God when, A, that's not a thing he promises, and B, that's an experience we're going to have. How, when he seems far away, what, what do we do? And that's where the book was birthed. In the introduction, you tell the reader what they will find in the book and what they won't find in the book. So give our listeners a rundown on that. What can they expect? Yeah, well, well, what they what they don't need to expect is like a big, heady theological work. I, I love those books, and I'm in those books, but no one needed no, no one needs me to write a, a theodicy, right? A, an academic defense of God's goodness in the midst of evil and suffering. So that's not what this book is. And the book also isn't like the wizened reflections of someone sort of near the end of their life, uh, you know, reflecting on you know now that they're wise and stuff. I, I don't feel particularly wise, and I hope I'm not near the end of my life. It's much more of a of a field manual kind of. Uh, it's very you know it's a brief book. It's um, 110 or so pages and. And, and it's what to do in certain situations when God feels absent or when God feels not so good or when God feels late. And what we do is we track, we track with my experience some, but we also track with the experience of biblical characters who had that same experience. 
So we'll look at Habakkuk and we look at we look at Elijah, we look at even at Jesus and and we're talking about you know what how do how do we how do we thrive and what keys does the scripture give us to thrive when God seems gone? Which leads me to this question, in your experience, how does the average Christian handle the silence of God? Uh, the average Christian, I suppose I can only speak to the average one maybe in America. And I sort of alluded it, alluded to it earlier. You know, our culture, you know, it, it is good that we live, I suppose, in a, in a prosperous culture. None of us are starving to death. We, you know, have access to hospitals and stuff like that. And so we, we become very comfortable. And and in the midst of that, there's a version of Christian gospel that sort of says, yeah, that's God's mission. God's mission is to make you comfortable and blessed and healthy. And if you have enough faith, then that's what you walk in. But the reality is like, that's not, that's not true at all. Um, that, that right. false gospel sells a lot of books yeah. <laughs> probably, but it, uh, but it, it's not true. And so we, we don't typically, you know, preach sermon series about and, and have books about and even have a culture that says, yeah, life with God will be hard. And that's not only okay, that's to be expected because God isn't just interested in giving us a nice cushy life. He's interested in making us the kind of people who can inherit the universe with him at the end of the age. So that means that sometimes on the road to the, on the road of righteousness, there'll be, you know, dark valleys of the shadow of death. But if we'll, if we'll trust him, then, you know, as the Solomons will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and goodness and mercy will chase after us. I have acquaintances, friends, people that I know that know in their head what the word says. But as you said, because the culture around us, we just feel like we shouldn't have to suffer that much, you know, but they are suffering that much. And so it's, mm -hmm. it's very difficult. It is difficult to get your brain, get your head back to, okay, the truth of the Word of God. What advice would you give to somebody, maybe somebody listening that's been in a long-term illness, they've been praying? What advice would you give them? Well, I think the first thing I would just say to them is, like, I, I'm so sorry. I, I can relate on various levels to such experiences, and I wouldn't wish them on my worst enemies. And in the midst of that, don't let your pain go to waste. I think that the enemy is designed for our pain is to make us bitter, is to make us uh, cynical. And that cynical move, it, it makes a lot of psychological sense because if I harden my heart, then it can't get hurt. But also if I harden my heart, it can't get healed. I can't feel anything. I, I, not only will I not feel bad things, I won't feel good things. I won't feel God's love or God's presence. And so what happens is this negative feedback loop that you know, I, something bad happens, so my heart gets hard. And I long for God to come and draw close, but I, it, it's almost as though I've lost my capacity to feel his presence because I've just been dwelling on my pain so much. So what I would, I would advise is, first of all, Jesus is 100% able to relate to your pain. And more than that, he's 100% able to relate to the feeling like he, he doesn't like what his father is doing. There's a really weird and interesting dynamic in the Garden of Gethsemane where you know, when Jesus prays, God, if it's possible, let this cup pass for me. Of course, Jesus never, his will was never contradicting his father, but there's some emotional experience of being human where he's saying, and yet, Lord, Father, I don't, this is not, I, this is not pleasant. You know, this is not, this is not the, the way things I, I, I hoped uh, would be. And, and, and so there's this desire for things to be other than they are. Yes. Uh, 
And so I, I would I would just say, you know, Jesus can relate to that. And if you come to him and, and pray to him like that, then you're kind of praying to him in ways that he would recognize. And so come to him with all of your all of your pain and all of the kind of living contradiction of of on the one hand we believe in a God who's really good, and on the other hand, our our lives don't always feel so good. Because it's actually in that tension that God is forging something in us that when we come out through the other side, we'll 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 be more like it. What reasons do you find in Scripture for God being silent when He promises to never leave us? Yeah, well, I want to draw a distinction. God's silence is not the same as His actual absence, right? Yes. So sometimes, you know, you can imagine a really good teacher, like a, a teacher who teaches really small kids, will often give answers and does a lot of the talking. But a teacher who teaches high schoolers and college students doesn't do as much talking. He waits for the the truth of what they've been learning, uh, his students have been learning to to actually make it out of them. So I, I don't want to I don't want to say that God's silence always always indicates his uh, his actual absence. Well, the first reason was just it's just sin, right? So if we're flagrantly sinning, uh, we shouldn't expect. Uh, to be super surprised when God feels far away, because yeah, that's what sin does. Uh, any more than you should expect to be surprised that you know your spouse doesn't want to hang out with you if you've been, you know, really horrible to them. Uh, relational brokenness creates relational di- uh, distance. But on the other side, the Bible actually gives uh, a few different uh, reasons, and not reasons as like propositional truths, but reasons as things learned through the stories. Right? Like, for instance, we encounter Habakkuk. Uh, his book opens with like, how long am I going to have to be asking you these questions, Lord? Indicating he's been asking the Lord for a minute about why why is Israel so messed up? Why, you know, why does everyone seem to be hating each other? Why why is no one obeying the word of God? And when the answer finally comes and God finally shows up, Habakkuk's in a place to receive the news that the answer answer is a little different than maybe he wanted it to be, maybe he hoped. But ultimately, like God is interested in forming us, not just blessing us with the stuff we want, but to make us the kind of people who can receive the blessing. And so in the New Testament, we, we hear that the troubles of this life are just light and momentary, even when they don't feel light and momentary. Like that shouldn't offend us. That should actually encourage us. Like, wow. Right. So you're saying my my incurable cancer diagnosis is light and momentary. Yeah. Compared to the weight of glory, it sure is. You know, or my the pain that my children are causing me is light and momentary. Yeah. Compared to what's coming, it is. It is. And that should help us to stand up under it and trust God in the midst of it, even when it doesn't feel good at all. Talk to us for a minute about lament. What is lament? What does it look like? And how can we lament without sinning? So uh, lament is different than just complaining. So complaining, we all know what complaining is, right? Like, I hate, you know, the traffic or whatever. Lament uh, achieves what complaining wishes it could. Um, without doing the damage to our souls that complaining always does. So lament is when I come to God and I, I'm really honest. I'm not, I don't have to put on my church clothes or my nice Christian sounding words. I can say, God, I hate this. Like, this is awful. This sucks. I mean, read some of the Psalms, like some of these, what we call the uh, imprecatory Psalms. Mm-hmm. People are coming to God with a degree of anger that is, I don't even want to reproduce on the radio here. Like it, it's shocking the freedom with which some of the psalmist feel they can come and be honest with the Lord. But lament trusts our anger and our sadness and our negative emotions to God. It doesn't accuse God in the midst of them. And that's the big difference. Uh, it can question God. It can go like, hey, this is not, I mean, I've had conversations like this with God lots. Hey, this is not how I would run the world. Like, 
I would like to file a complaint with the manager. You know, like this is, this doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever, but it always ends with nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Mm-hmm. Okay. God, I submit to you. I trust you. I know that I can't, even if you explain to me how you're running the world, like my mind couldn't take it. I'd die before you got done explaining. So I trust you. And, and it, and it's the dialogue with God that allows us to realize that we're allowed to bring the yucky stuff in our heart to him as much as the gratitude and the praise. What about the person that can't seem to get those words, nevertheless, thy will be done, out of their mouth? Mm. What would you say to them? It seems that maybe there's not that trust in in who God is yet, maybe, to be able to say Mm -hmm. that. I'm not sure. I'm just talking this out with you. How with that person that just can't get those words out of their mouth? To, it's, it's probably to, to that kind of person that I've, I've written this book because it takes a little bit of working out like, Lord, the life that you've allowed me to have, ordained for me to have, you know, pick your verb, the, the one that I've got that you're overseeing, I'm not happy with this. And I don't see how you could be trustworthy at all. It's actually right there when we can't get those words out that we need the stories of scripture that we need to go. Okay. My experience has got to be like someone in here. How did they get out? How did they, how did they turn their, you know, their experience of just radical years long suffering into victory and glory? How did that happen? And so the book is really designed to talk to, you know, one of those people. The first, the first step is to figure out, well, what is the reason why? Is it that you feel that God is far away? Is it that you feel he is silent? Is it that you feel he's actually just not good at all? And, and you're actually doubting his moral character hmm. because each one of those has a sort of different path toward wholeness. If it's that he feels far away, then it's then it's the reminder that, well, your feelings are not the only thing that tells you reality. And our current culture says they are, and that it's the best way to know everything. But yeah. the Bible says, no, they're a way to know some things, but uh, your heart is also kind of messed up and you need a new one. And so th- that's one path to getting to the place of saying, okay, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. If on the other hand, your life has been characterized by such suffering and it seems so unfair that you're doubting the actual goodness of God. Well, then that's, that, that, that requires a different track, namely like, okay, Lord, how do you, how can you justify calling yourself good and overseeing a world that isn't? And, and really there, my, my best answer is for us to go just look headlong into the cross of Christ, which tells me that God can ordain a kind of evil and suffering that is so evil, so, so wrong. Right? God can God can cause or will or plan or whatever the death of his son at the hands of sinners, and yet it's that very thing through which he brings about the greatest conceivable good, namely the forgiveness of those sinners and the restoration of all things. Okay, if God can do that with that, I think he can do something great with this, right? So, so the book is actually designed to help someone kind of identify, well, why, why is it that we have a hard time feeling like we can trust God in that way. And once identifying it, you know, there's different paths of, of healing and wholeness from there. Similar, but a little bit different. When God seems just excruciatingly slow in answering a prayer to our cry mm-hmm. for help, and like in every stretch of the 21st century mindset, which is not very long, right? We want we want it right away. But let's just, you know, when he just seems excruciatingly slow, what should our response be? Oh, well, I mean, the Bible tells us, right? Uh, a day to the Lord is like a thousand years. 
in a thousand years like a day. The, God is putting together something that's bigger than just my life. And man, that doesn't, in, in a culture that's saturated with the hyper individualism that thinks, well, my, I have to get my best life now because this is the only life there is, it, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And so only once you embrace the belief that this is not the only life there is and that the one that is coming is of such a kind that death will literally be swallowed, it will be consumed by victory, not just replaced by victory or overcome by victory, but consumed by it. Then, then we can actually start to go, okay, this might take a while. I mean, I remember praying about our own situation and realizing after a couple of rounds of, you know, when we hope things would get better, realizing, oh, this could be a, this could be a thing that we deal with for decades or forever. Okay. You know, and, and realizing, oh, the, the scope of my problem might be different and therefore the scope of my trust might need to get different. Mm-hmm. How did you go about making the scope of your trust different? Well, it started by realizing, uh, you know, step one is I, I tend to be positive. Uh, like I, I'm a realist, but I like, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a man of faith. I'm a church planter. I, I like to, you know, believe that God can do like amazing things. And I'm just kind of oriented that way. And so sometimes looking at really, really, really bad news and not rushing to the good side is hard for me, right? The Bible says that Abraham, the man of faith, looked at his own body and was like, well, this is as good as dead. And looked at his wife and was like, well, this isn't going to happen. And then trusted the promises, right? I want to skip those first two parts and just trust the promises. But it's actually when you see the nature of the problem that you realize, oh, the pres- like the prescription of faith that this is going to require is different than I need to trust God for my next job or uh, money for the mission trip or something like that, which are all legitimate things. I don't want to demean those, but, oh, I, we're talking about a lifelong trust, like thorn in the flesh trust, mm-hmm. trust like mm-hmm. Paul had to have. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Holy Spirit, you're the only one. You know, my Bible still says that faith is a gift from God. So uh, I, I've often found myself praying, you know, like the disciples, okay, Lord, I mean, I believe you, but I need some help with the unbelief. Yeah. Help my unbelief. Yes. Uh, you know, make up this gap. Mm-hmm. Um, it almost feels like a bill that's too large for, you know, my account to cover. Mm-hmm. I have to go, okay, Lord, I'm going to need, I'm going to need to transfer <laughs> here uh, so that I can, I can truly trust you in the midst of a, of a thing that's so chronic or so big that I might not, I might not see the healing of it on this side mm-hmm. of glory. Mm-hmm. But but okay, all right. So give me give me that scale and give me that scope. And he is faithful, and he will do it. He he is faithful, and and he absolutely will do it. And the way he'll do it is interesting. He'll not just do it by like speaking to me internally, uh, or just even speaking to me through scripture. Though those things are critically important, he speaks to me through my church relationships, my family, my own pastors. It's so important for us Americans, especially, to realize like God gave us each other as a gift. That we're to encourage one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That we're to bear one another's burdens. That when one member of the body is weak, the others are meant to help. And so very often what we do is, uh, I call it the dying cat syndrome. Like we had cats growing up, and whenever anyone of the cats was sick, they would just wander away. And we would mm-hmm. never see them again. They never like died in the house. They just like, you know, died alone in the woods. And that's kind of what we do. We're like, oh, for suffering, no one wants to hear about my suffering or my depression or my cancer diagnosis or whatever. So I'm just going to, I'll back away. I don't want to be a burden which is just ridiculous because the Bible tells us to bear one another's burdens. That's what we're, that's what we're supposed to do. And so by 
pressing into spiritual family, by pressing into uh, those relationships, we're actually getting toward the healing that, that we need. But if we deny ourselves those things, then, then we're not, and we, we won't. That sounds like an exhortation to both the person suffering and the person in the body of Christ. Like the person suffering, don't isolate yourself. Be in that community. But the person Mm -hmm. in the body of Christ, like recognize this is your role. Step up. This is what God is asking Mm -hmm. of you. Be a support to this person. Bear that person's burden. And uh, so it's for all of us to be in community and to be that for one another. And then if it happens to be our turn to lean on someone else, don't isolate, but press in and and be with yeah. be with the community. And I would even push that a little a little further and say, you know, just as with my local church pastor hat on, especially after COVID, uh, churches, I've never seen church seem more to more people like a consumer product, like, oh, you know, oh, I didn't go this Sunday. We just, we, we went online. I don't know how many of your people go online or, or whatever, um, but you can't be discipled online. You can't develop meaningful life on life relationships from a distance. And so don't merely go to church. Don't just consume religious goods and services, but pick one and be all in. Recognize it. Yeah, it's not going to be perfect because you're there. <laughs> and if it was my, you know, your sinful flesh and messed it up by the time you got there. So, so just throw in, grab, like grab a hold of a local church and say, okay, this is mine. This is my family. And when you do the reward that you'll get back is so much greater than the than what what you're called to give, um, and it's so much different than what you could have given yourself. I'm speaking with Adam Mabry about his book "When God Seems Gone." Adam is the mm-hmm. lead pastor at Aletheia Church in Boston, Massachusetts. He holds two master's degrees and a doctorate of ministry, and will soon complete his PhD at the University of Aberdeen. He lives in the Boston area with his wife, Hope, and their four children. Adam, what would you say to the person who feels they have been treated unfairly by God? And we've been talking about that, but bring that home again. When it feels like God's not fair, there's a sense in which that that experience is telling us something true. Namely, God does not treat everybody the exact same. God is not pro-equity. We don't all get the same outcomes uh, by any means. And, uh, and, and our desire to have the same outcomes sometimes comes from a good place because there's a part of justice that is about fairness. But the, the side of that that is inaccurate is that God's God, and God is the one with the prerogative to do with us and with the world what most accords with his will, his glory, and therefore our ultimate good. And so the way God treats us and our response to us response to it has to be one rooted in trust. And the reason that's possible, because whenever I tell people this, they say, well, that, that's not any better. So God's God, so he just gets to do with me whatever he wants. And the answer is, well, yeah, but the reason we know that we can trust him with all that power is because the gospel tells us what he did with it. So what did God do with all the power and all the wealth and all the, you know, all the everything? He put on flesh and he died for sinful humans. So God took all that power and all that wealth and all that potentiality and served with it and suffered with it and made a way for sinners to be reconciled with it. So if that's what God does with all power and all wealth, then I can trust him, even when it seems like I'm not being treated fair or equitably. This is also the experience of Peter. When Jesus was restoring Peter, you know, feed my sheep. Uh, Do you love me? Feed my sheep. And at the very end of the gospel of John, Jesus prophesies over him. He's like, hey, you're not, your death isn't going to be great, basically. 
And then he looks back and there's the Apostle John sort of, you know, walking behind them. And he's like, well, what about that guy? <laughs> and Jesus is like, yeah, if I want him to live forever, that actually has nothing to do with you. As for you, follow me. And that's exactly like, I'm so glad that's in the Bible <laughs> uh, because I'm like, yeah, that's that is what if God wants to make my neighbor a millionaire who lives to 120 and all his kids are awesome and his body is always healthy. OK. And if God wants to do something very different with me, with me, OK, because I'm not him. And if I try to be him, I'll actually break everything. And so if I can trust him, even with my difficult situation, that doesn't mean I shouldn't have faith for healing. I mean, I believe in a God who heals. I believe in a God who does miracles. And I've seen him do those things. But there, sometimes the biggest exercise of faith that we can have is perseverance. Mm -hmm. Just waking up the next day and saying, okay, God, I trust you. Mm -hmm. And while I'm waiting on the healing, I'll serve you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love what you said in the book also about this, that it's a good thing God isn't fair. Because if he was fair, yeah. we would be in yeah, hell. We'd be in hell forever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. God treated his son Jesus, you know, quote unquote, unfairly so that he could treat us unfairly. Yeah, Grace isn't fair. Uh, if, if you want God to be fair to you, you're asking for a thing that you really don't want. Right. Uh, because fairness is hell forever for me. And therefore, I'm, I'm very glad that God has suspended whatever I perceive to be fair so that he can be good, gracious, yeah. kind. Adam, speak with us for a minute about how we can become more emotionally self-aware and why it's important to do so regarding all of this when God seems gone. Emotional self-awareness is probably one of the greatest gifts that great Christian therapy has given me. Uh, just the ability to go, oh, I'm really angry or I'm really sad because if I don't acknowledge my feelings, I'll, I'll be, I'll be uh, run by them and I just won't know. I'll think I'm thinking and being all rational, but actually my, uh, you know, to use Jonathan Haidt's analogy, the, the elephant is driving a rider instead of the other way around. Like my, my emotions are just going to color my thinking in ways that if I were not so emotional, I, I wouldn't want them to. And the reason that that's important is because if I can admit to myself how I feel about God then how will I possibly appropriately trust him? There's a strange thing that happens in Christian circles whereby we don't, we don't want to say bad things. We don't want to talk about when things are bad because we, almost like we believe in some weird sympathetic magic or luck mm. that if we, if we name something as mm -hmm. bad, then we'll get more of it. And which has got a lot more to do with like weird kind of eighties, new agey, you know, power positive thinking stuff than, than biblical faith, right? I mean, we we said earlier, Abraham was able to go, this is not going to work. I, I'm almost dead. She's almost dead. We're not having kids. But okay, God, I trust you anyway. That That is what faith is. Faith isn't just pretending away like, oh, no, la, 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 everything's wonderful. No, that's not, that's not faith at all. Truly trusting God requires us to admit when things are hard. And doing that requires us to know how we're feeling. To know I am feeling deep emotions that I are, that aren't great. They're not great. They're not nice. I'm not in faith. I'm very flesh, you know, not to revel in it, not to glory in it. And not just to kind of, you know, be in our brokenness all the time, but you can't crawl out of a hole. You don't know you're in, <laughs> you Good can't point. put out a fire. You won't admit is there. Yeah. So if you, if you can't identify that you're in the hole or you can't identify that something is on fire, well, then you stand very little chance of being able to get out of the hole or putting out the fire. And so emotional self-awareness is, is the admission, oh, I've got, you know, it's like the, the first step of the 12 steps for recovering alcoholics or okay. drug addicts is being able to go, oh, I have a problem. This is a real problem. 
Um, and, and that goes for the, the rest of us to be able to realize, oh, these, these emotions are pushing me around and that's not great. But now that I know they're there, I can actually process them with the Lord. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Boston Pastor Adam Mabry, author of When God Seems Gone, Finding Hope When Nothing Makes Sense. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's David Bush on body stewardship and being physically active in your later years. And unfortunately, among pastors and leaders in church, as well as congregations at large, uh, physical health is not talked about. And uh, that is to um, our detriment because we need to talk about this because there, it, it, we don't live in silos. Uh, this. Our physical lives impact our spiritual lives, impact our ability to love God and serve others. That's tomorrow at this same time right here on His People. Thanks for listening.